0: Amen. That's that's an appropriate song, especially as we think about uh, seniors and how over time we've seen them grow and come to the place that they're at. Uh, Seniors, in the same way that I told our mothers last Sunday, I didn't have a special sermon for them. I don't have a special sermon just for you. Uh, But I do hope that that as we continue this series in 1 Samuel, I, I, I hope that you can take part of that as we talk about who God is to us, who He was in the passage that we're in. Uh, and you can be blessed as you take that with you uh, We're in 1 Samuel chapter 6 As we go through uh, this series We'll be reading verses 1 to 21 in just a moment And last week we talked about God's character And one thing I said when we were talking about that Is that at some point Whether you go to church, whether you don't you're going to, People will just misunderstand who God is It's, it's just inevitable for us too And I think it's important, seniors especially, that that when you leave this place and and go to wherever you're going to go or or, or stay here to go and do whatever you're going to do, that you have an accurate picture of God because how we understand God influences how we live for God. And so we said last week that God's character is ultimately revealed in Jesus and and what He gave and what He did and, and He wants us to have, we can have that same character in Christ. Uh, But people misunderstand that, that they will. And even when we're on the right path, we misunderstand it sometimes. Some of my earliest thoughts I've I've shared with you before, my earliest thoughts about God came from uh, being brought to the Lutheran church with my grandmother. And this was a, uh, you could call it a a lackluster Lutheran church. And the same way we talk about Baptists. That would be the Lutheran equivalent of, this, of, of the kind of church that this was. It had a formal altar and it had this railing that went around it. You know, we don't have that in our architecture, but it had this railing uh, and, and it was elevated. And you, you went up on the altar and then it had a table at the very uh, back part of the altar and it had uh, a huge Bible in the middle of it. it, had candles on either side, and there was a huge cross that uh, was, ran the, the, the length, the, the, the of the whole sanctuary back on the wall. And I remember the pastor would wear his robes and stuff when it was time to get ready for the service. And he would come out and he would bow before that cross and that Bible. And we'd light the candles, you know. And, and it was just a really sort of high, high holy experience, I guess you could say. And uh, they, played, they played an organ in the Lutheran church always, nothing else. And, and, and you don't really have music ministers in the Lutheran tradition and so when it's, what you do is as is, is, is you're playing on the prelude. The organist is playing the prelude. Uh, she's playing at sort of a normal volume. But then when it gets time for everybody to come in, she starts playing really loud. So, so as if to say, even if you're deaf, you know it's time to come in, right? Uh, and that's how we knew it was time to start singing the first hymn. And that's the way the service started. And we sang that first hymn. And then after that first hymn was over... The pastor would be on one side of, of the sanctuary and he'd walk. The pulpit was not in the center like it is in, in most Baptist churches. It was, it's over on the side. And he'd walk all the way to the pulpit on the other side of the sanctuary. And, and he greeted us the same way every Sunday. He'd say, welcome to God's house. And as a six-year-old kid, sometimes I took that literally. And I wondered, what did God do? Does he do in here the other six days of the week that we're not here? Does he make the candles flicker? Does he play Phantom of the Opera on the organ? I mean, what does he do if this is his house? And man, how glad I was that it wasn't my house to think of my house being kind of drab and boring and kind of traditional looking. And I wasn't trying to be irreverent. I just kind of took things literally as a six-year-old. And I'm not trying to be irreverent today when I bring it up. But, but I'm simply trying to make the point that our impressions of God, whether we intend them to or not, are, are shaped, sometimes wrongly, by, by different things. And sometimes that happens because we go to church and we see something or hear something and maybe we misinterpret it. Or it happens maybe because we're not brought to church as a kid. Or we wait until a certain time before we ever were exposed to anything that had anything to do with church or God. You know, as many churches as there are in Gatesville, a lot of people have just a very sort of cultural view of God. You know, He's this guy, and maybe He made everything, but I don't really know Him or have much of a relationship with Him, and and they may even go to church every Sunday, but that's just sort of the prevailing understanding of God. It's a very kind of shallow understanding of God. In eighteen, I think it was eighteen eighty nine. Uh, The phrase, you've heard this phrase, a mile wide and an inch deep. That phrase was born when a journalist was writing about a river, uh, the Platte River. It's a muddy and wide and shallow sort of stream with a swampy bottom. And uh, it's just not deep enough for any important boat to to go in and carry anything. But it's important uh, in the Missouri River, the, the tributary system in the Missouri River Watershed. But boats, they they don't use it. And so the journalist wrote about this river, and he said the river has a very large circulation but very little influence. It covers a good deal of ground, but it's not deep. In some places, he says it's a mile wide, and he didn't even say an inch. He said and three quarters of an inch deep. And that's where the phrase came from, a mile wide and an inch deep. And as you know, when we use that phrase, we don't use it as a compliment, do we? It quickly began to be used as, as a phrase that said someone's they're not, they're not very, you know, with it. Whether it's in politics or academics or even in their understanding about God. It's kind of superficial. Now, seniors, if I were to force you to be honest and ask you uh, about all the classes that you took when you were in school. You could even limit them to your high school classes. And you think about those classes. There's one or two probably that you took And you passed. And maybe you even made an okay grade in it. But your knowledge about the subject is still kind of superficial. If you just had to be honest. I'm not asking you to. But if you had to be, you'd probably admit that. And and that happens. And it happens because for all kinds of reasons. It happens maybe because the subject that you studied is just not your favorite. And so you weren't motivated to dig in deep to some of those things. You just did what you had to do to sort of get by. Sometimes it's motivated because... That, or that happens because you and the teacher were, you know, kind of butted heads, wasn't your favorite person to learn under, and so you weren't motivated to try as hard. Sometimes it happens because there's something outside of school that happens in your life and it affects you, and, and you just don't study as hard during that time of your life. And I think that same thing happens in regards to God, whether we go to church all the time or not. So many of us here, so many of you as, as graduating seniors, are, are people that you have gone to Bible study after Bible study. You've heard sermon after sermon. And, and, and you've heard the things about God. But you've also had experiences. And, and you've also uh, heard, you know, things from other folks. And all those things kind of create this mix in our minds and our hearts and understanding of, of who God is. And, and hopefully we can come to a point where you can recognize who God is and you don't fall under these misunderstandings uh, that so many in our culture do. Because when people don't get God, like we talked about last week, when we really don't get who he is, people start making assumptions about God. And you know what happens when you make assumptions, right? I'm not going to say it. You can ask your neighbor if you don't know. Wait right till after the sermon. But that's what we do. We make these assumptions. And when we pick up in 1 Samuel, that's, that's the flaw of the Philistines. They assume some things about God based on some circumstances that they go through. Uh, when, the, when the ark, we talked about the ark of the covenant, they, they captured it and, and bad stuff began to happen. And so they, they make these assumptions that if they do this, God will do this. And we're going to pick up there in 1 Samuel chapter 6. I invite you to turn if you haven't. I'm going to read 21 verses. So it's, it's kind of lengthy, but hang on with me. The, the scripture will be on your screen as well. First 1 Samuel chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, If you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? They replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of the Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart. and Then a chest beside it put the gold objects you are sending back to them as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and pinned up their calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up toward Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left. The rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as burnt offerings to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord, together with the chest containing the gold objects, and placed them on a large rock. On that day, the people of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. These are the gold tumors the Philistines sent as a guilt offering to the Lord. One each for Ashdod, Gaza, Ash- <clears throat> Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And the number of the gold rats was according to the number of the Philistine towns belonging to the five rulers. The fortified towns with their country villages. The large rock on which the Levites set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this, to this day, in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Bethshemesh, putting seventy of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt among them. And the people of Bethshemesh asked, "Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up?" From here. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kirith Jerem saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. And so, even the people of God, not just the Philistines, even the people of God are struggling about what to do with this ark of the covenant. And it's because they, they have these misunderstandings about God, they make these assumptions about God. I think one of the first obvious assumptions that the Philistines make is that they assume that God is like people. They assume that the God of the Israelites is like normal people because for them, that's kind of like how their gods were. Their gods got mad and lashed out and did crazy things and uh, sometimes did immoral things. And so they kind of project this onto Israel's God. One of my my favorite uh, movies that depicts God... Erroneously, I think, is the movie Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey. Do you remember that movie? Came out a few years ago. And, and my favorite scene, or one of my favorite scenes, is when Bruce, you know, gets, it's after he's gotten God's powers, so to speak, and becomes sort of God's substitute, and uh, he discovers that he's going to have to answer everyone's prayers. Do you remember? And uh, so he starts hearing all these voices, and, and you know, it's just overwhelming to, that he's actually going to hear all these prayers and try to answer them. And, so rather than try to answer them in his head, somehow he figures out a way. Well, well, he sets up an email. Remember, not Yahoo email, but Yahweh. That was a cute little pun. And so he's 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 getting all everyone's prayers in the whole world through email. Of course, the problem, the first problem he runs into is that he just can't answer, he can't keep up with them and read them in a timely fashion. He just has millions of emails in his inbox. Some of that's us because we have spam nowadays. Uh, That was before the days of that. And he just can't keep up with all those emails. And uh, so he decides rather than reading each and every prayer request, he's just going to answer yes to everyone. Right? I mean, that's easy. You don't have to read them. Just yes, 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 yes. And, and you know, I could kind of relate to that kind of God. You know, I mean, I don't like saying no to people, I don't like disappointing people. So let's just say yes. To all of them, and of course, the reason that, why that's not a good idea is because the stuff people ask for and want is often a horrible idea, and so the world almost comes to this catastrophic end because of what he's doing. Well, I admit that's that's not uh, that's not who God is. We would like God to be that way sometimes, but He's not. And, and the Philistines, after they're harboring this ark for seven months, they look at God and they make this assumption that that they can treat God like a person. They can kind of make a deal with Him. They can test Him. And, and it's kind of funny, it's it's really kind of silly that they even think about doing this because they've had the ark for seven months. They've been dealing with this plague of, of rats and tumors and it's just a horrible thing to think about. And I would think that after seven months of that that they would say, well, I don't care if this is God or not. We're just going to get rid of this thing and we're going to be okay. But they, they come up with this little test. And in verse 3 that they say, if... If, the rulers tell them, the the priests and the diviners of the Philistines, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, like why would you not? But if you do, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering with it. And what they mean by guilt offering is bribe. (laughs) To the Israelites, a guilt offering was something that the people offered when they were wanting to atone for sins that they committed that they were not aware of. To the Philistines, this isn't a guilt offering. It's just something to get God to do what they want to do. And so they make five of these gold tumors and five rats. And, and this was sort of a magical thing. They thought, you know, if we make models of this and send it out, you know, symbolically, then we're sending this stuff out of our territory. And it's not even about God. It's just about them doing what they think might work to, to get God, the Israelite God to do what they want Him to do. You know, as people, we're not, we're not all that different today. Even in our own relationships what we love, that we love and family, uh, we, we kind of do things to sort of get what we want sometimes. At the heart of who God is, though, is a desire for people not to just come to Him because they want something, but to genu- genuinely engage with Him, to have a relationship with Him, like we say. And, and the reason that He's not bribable like, like the God that Jim Carrey played or the, or, or the God that the Philistines would like Him to be it's because He's bigger than that stuff. And so as believers in the God of the Bible, we can bring prayers to Him. We can bring requests to Him. Not because, well, He might answer them or He might not answer them. Not because whatever's going wrong, He's going to make it right and make everything okay. But because He is God. I and mean, that's the biggest reason. He's God and, and He can handle it. And, and we can bring that to Him not knowing how or if He's even going to respond. And know that in the end, he's, he's faithful to us because He's God. That's the, the biggest difference between people and God. People care about what how they do affects them. But God cares about what He's doing in us and through us. And, and how He wants us to be long term. Regardless of whatever it is that we're going to. And so, the first thing is, is that we assume sometimes God is like people. And, and that's not true. We also assume sometimes... That we can understand all of God's intentions behind every single thing that happens. All you got to do is read the Bible and know that that's not true. But sometimes we make that assumption. You know, one of the things as a pastor that hurts my heart is as I'll be visiting someone in a hospital or a nursing home, and and they've gone through something horrible. Whether they're suffering from you know uh, uh, an illness or, or maybe they were just in a horrible car accident. I talk to people outside of the hospital. They've gone through a divorce and, and, and they've just gone through horrible things. And, and quite often I will hear somebody say something to me. A Christian, a believer with good intentions will say something like, Man, I sure wish I would learn whatever it is that God is trying to teach me so I can make it through this trial. Have you thought about what that implies though? That every single thing that God makes, makes you go through that's not to your liking, well, he's, he's trying to teach you this one specific thing. And I'm not sure that's always the case. What I would say is possibly the case is that you're going through something and God can definitely use that to teach you something. And you should seek and you should ask Him to teach you something in the midst of that. But if you think that just because you learn a a certain lesson that God's going to make that go away, well then you're kind of a borderline Philistine there. You're thinking, well, if I can just learn this thing God wants me to get and pass the test, well, everything will be okay. And and, and as much as I value passing tests and knowledge, it's it's just not like that in life, is it? We graduate and we move on and and, and we we hit milestones, but there's no milestone you can hit with God that's going to get Him to do all the time exactly what you want Him to do. So the Philistines are so intent on discovering whether or not the God of Israel is trying to, to, to communicate to them with all this bad stuff. That they, they do this test uh, as, as if the last seven months of the rats and the tumors you know, weren't, weren't enough. But they do this test and it's because they assume that they understand how God is working. They assume that they know the reason behind it. But God really wasn't out to get them to begin with. You know, this happens as, a, as just this huge sort of domino effect because of what Israelites did and, and, and how you know, they came and they took the Ark of the Covenant. But, but God's not out to get them specifically. And so they test this out and, and, and the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is hitched up to these cows uh, who, who just calved. And so the thought behind that is that if, this, if this is really not what God wants, well certainly, you know, the, the cows are going to want to come back to be with their calves. And of course it goes all the way to, to Israelite territory, to, to Beth Shemesh. And verse 9 says that, that then we will know if that happens. Then we will know that it was, uh, whether it was his hand that struck us or that whether it happened by chance. If someone really gets God, if we really understand who he is in Christ. And that sometimes bad things happen and, and God, God wants us to love him regardless. If, if we get that then what we say when stuff like that happens is whether this is by chance or not, it doesn't really matter. That's, that's not the point. I remember when I was younger, I vowed to never be the kind of parent that said to my kids when they asked me why, because I said so. He finished the sentence for me. I vowed that I would never be that kind of parent. I didn't want to be that kind of parent. But once you become a parent, you, you learn that there are certain things that you just, there is no explanation. There's no explanation they can get or understand. Your, your level of thinking is, is above theirs. And as much as you would like to just explain everything out, it's kind of impossible to reason with a three-year-old. <laughs> I try. And so at some point, it boils down to, look, I'm your parent. I know what's best. And, and this is just the way that it is. And it takes a level of maturity for kids to get to that point and, and, and to trust their parents no matter what. And for us, I think the degree that we understand God is God, apart from all the reasons that we might want to project upon Him or ask about, but just the degree that we can understand that God is God, apart from all that stuff, corresponds to the degree that we live for Him. So we don't assume that we understand all the reasons behind everything. And then we don't assume that because something happened, God thinks that we're better or worse than someone else. That's another assumption we make is that, well, God favors me because he's letting me do this. Or he favors somebody else more than me because they're getting to do that. Brennan Manning tells this story uh, of a guy named Edward Farrell who went uh, to, to celebrate his uncle's 80th birthday. And uh, they went to this beautiful place in Ireland. His, his uncle was Irish, and so... Uh, they're at this nice vacation spot in Ireland, and, and they're walking alongside this beautiful lake. And his uncle was always someone that, that just struggled in and, and their relationship with God. And Edward tried to share God with him and witness to him. And he'd come to this point to where, at 80 years old, this was sinking into his mind, into his heart. And, and as they're walking alongside the lake, the sun, that it was really early in the morning, the sun starts to rise. And so they stop, and they sit down, and they watch the sunrise, and there's quiet. And neither one of them says anything for about 20 minutes. And then they get up and Edward notices that his 80-year-old uncle just has this smile on his face. And and he can't help but ask him what what he's smiling about. And his response, his Irish response, I'm not going to try and have an Irish accent. He said, yes. Uh, He he said, tell me why you're so happy. And he said, said, yes, lad. he had tears going down his face. The father is fond of me said ah the father is fond of me and that's so simple for most of us to understand that this is god and this is who he is that he actually cares about us but for this 80 year old man it had seeped in his consciousness for really maybe the first time we say sometimes that time is the greatest equalizer and i think in time the bible bears out that god cares about everyone he cares he cares believe it or not about the philistines just as he as much as he does the israelites but for the moment, the only point of reference the Philistines have is who God is related to Israel, to these people. And, and, and they bring back the Ark of the Covenant uh, to this place called Beth Shemesh. And, and literally, that means Temple of the Sun God. And so it, it's kind of had some, some pagan influence. In fact, archaeologists have discovered lots of Philistine pottery in this area, even though this was a, a, an, an Israelite territory. And so they allowed the Philistines to influence them. And God is trying to take his people and set them apart and, and to make them holy. And verse 16 tells us that the five rulers of the Philistines watched as the people of God chopped up the wood that the ark arrived on. They sacrificed the cows. They set the ark on the large rock and they offered these burnt offerings. And I can't help but wonder if I put myself in the place of the Philistines, what, what we would, I would be thinking. What, why, why has God allowed these people to have this God that is so far superior to ours? Why did he choose them? Why is he allowing them to have this? And when we read this, this passage in isolation from the rest of the Bible, it's tempting to think, well, God favors some people over another. But he didn't have anything against the Philistines. But he did have something for Israel that he would ultimately use to spread his influence and his relationship to all people. And so we, do, we can't get too hung up on, on one person or one group and think, well, why does God treat them this way and another person this way? And I think the reason that it takes some of us so long to, to get God, so to speak, is because we look at people that maybe we look up to. People who have uh, a great relationship with God. And maybe they seem like they have it all together. Maybe they have a great marriage. Maybe they, 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 they know the Bible frontwards and backwards. And, and we think, I could never be like this person that I look up to. Or God could never be to me, obviously, and be so close to me like He is to so-and-so. And And that's not true. That's not what Scripture bears out in its entirety. And if you're tempted to think that, I hope that today would be maybe a turning point for you, like it was for for Edward's uncle, where you say, I realize God, God cares for me just as much as He cares for this other person that has everything that they should. And I don't. And if you're not tempted to think that, I guarantee you that there is someone that you know. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they've been in church their whole life. Maybe you teach them Sunday school. But there's someone that you know that has this wrong view of God. And and maybe you're the only person that can sort of show them that this is really what God is like. So God's not like people. We don't always understand him. He doesn't play favorites. And now we have to turn it on us. We have to turn it on ourselves. God doesn't play favorites, then that means that we, as much as we like to think we're the center of everything, we're not the exception to everything. You know, as, and I struggle with this as an American because Americans, over time, we've really become—we think we're pretty great. You know, I mean, when you compare us to other people, we think we're we're pretty good. In 1950, uh, there was a Gallup poll, and they asked high school seniors. They said. Uh, would you describe yourself as a very important person 1950 12% of graduating seniors said yes they asked the same exact question 2008 80% of seniors said yes i'm a very important person and so it shows us over time the way our our kind of egos and thoughts not that you're not important seniors but, but our culture is, we've elevated our egos a little bit. If you ask, uh, there was a Time magazine poll that asked, Are you, the top, are you in the top 1% of, of uh, the income earning in America? Would you believe that 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of, of the income? <laughs> the highest income bracket. We're 25th. America is 25th in the world... At math. We're number one in the world. At thinking that we're the best. At math. We think we're exceptional. And, and in some ways many of us are. But, But if we're not careful. That bleeds into how we understand God. And the way he relates to us. And the way that he relates to other people. In a sense Israel was exceptional. They were God's chosen people. He made a covenant with them. But they were not an exception to the rule. And so, as the ark is coming into their own territory, it tells us that they looked into it, something that they knew they were not supposed to do. And several of them died as a result. And, and they find themselves treating, even as God's chosen people, they're treating the ark of the covenant in a very similar way that the Philistines did. They're making these assumptions that, well, we're God's chosen people. You know, it didn't belong over there, and we have it, and now we can do what we want. And as these people start dying, you, you see that sadly, they respond in the same way that the Philistines did, don't they? They called the next town over in Israelite territory and said, hey, the Ark of the Covenant's here, but we don't want it. If God is going to expect us to act a certain way, then we don't want God. They didn't say that, but that's more or less what they said. And they passed it along in the same way that the Philistines did because they think that they're the exception. Now, if you've gone to a Baptist church like ours, we we kind of downplay exceptionalism in the way that we do church. I remember the first time I told you I went to a Lutheran church when when I grew up. But I remember the first time I went to a Baptist church and I was introduced to the pastor. I was introduced to Brother Ed. And I was confused. What do you mean he's Brother Ed? Like, literally, he's everyone's brother? That's kind of creepy, you know? No, it wasn't a literal thing. It was a title. And it was a title that was given to show the pastor, uh, to show respect and to show honor. But at the same time to communicate that, well, he's not over anyone spiritually. He's our brother, right? And and some of you use that title and you refer to me. And since it's not literal, I gladly accept it. I like all of you, but I wouldn't want to be all of your your biological brother. I have enough family baggage of my own. More important than a title, though, that I hope you get when you come to our church is that there really isn't a place for exceptionalism in our fellowship. There there are some of you that have been a part of our church for a long time, and you've done so many things. You've given a lot of money, and and you really are a part of us. And and maybe you need to hear this morning that God didn't make you any better than the visitor that walks in off the street that doesn't know who you are. And maybe you are and you've come here a few times and you're on the other side and you're a visitor and you don't have a role on a formal committee and you're just kind of checking us out. Well, you need to hear that, that you're not any less exceptional in Christ than someone else that's attending our church and has been a part and, and helped finance building campaign. I remember right after I became a Christian at, at at, at the, the youth conference that I was at, I accepted Christ, and I remember walking out, and, and they were playing this simple chorus, and it was something that it just communicated something to me I'd never really thought about. But this chorus was called Holiness, and, and it simply said, stated that holiness is what I long for, holiness is what I need, and holiness is what you want for me. And, and I always thought that I should probably be holy, and that God probably wants from me to be holy, but I never thought about like this is really something God wants to help me do and, and achieve. That he, that he wants that for me, not just from me, but for me. And so you can't get God if you don't understand who he is and what he wants you to be. And so this morning I just ask you to think about what are some of those assumptions you've made about me. Even if you've been in church your whole life, what are some of the things that you've thought that you think now? Well, maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe God's not asking me to do this or to think this or to learn this. And maybe he, just, maybe he just wants me to be holy and faithful and dedicated to Him. This morning I ask you to think about that, to seek that. Ask God to make you holy. And trust that no, no matter what else is going on, that is enough and that's who God wants you to be. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that that you, from the very beginning, have been working in our world to make everyday people, like the people that come to Eastwood Baptist Church, people who are holy and who are set apart. And Lord, sometimes we would like holiness to look different than it actually does. And so as we think about our lives, we think about where we're at, we think about what we've gone through. God, we do pray that you would set us apart in our hearts. And as we think about today being the the day that the Holy Spirit uh, was, was introduced to the church. Lord, remind us that we have access to that same spirit that can work in our hearts and our minds. And help us to be the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name.